0: Hey, welcome back, and thanks for downloading the Noggin Notes podcast. I'm the host, Jake Wiskirchen, and today's episode is a real treat. I think it's uh, the first of a two-part series. I guess you can have a series of two parts. I don't know. Maybe maybe it needs more than two, but either way, we have <laughs> we have two parts to this installment. Uh, it's going to be on. Uh, eating intuitively, as well as the overall concepts of what a diet is and what it can consist of and some of the the things that interfere with that. Uh, but most importantly, the connection to mental and behavioral health and and chiefly to, to family functioning and the the benefits of having a good diet. Katie uh, goes into some detail on how their program works at Community Health Alliance. Uh, you can check out chanevada.org. They are a uh, uh, really great agency here in town that Zephyr Wellness, my, my company, has partnered with over the last couple of years, and we have a really nice uh, symbiotic relationship with Community Health Alliance. Uh, they've been on the program before, Afton Newfeld and uh, Patrick Rogers were talking about the behavioral health program, and so this episode talks about uh, dietary uh, factors that, that go into living life and... It uh, Like I said, it turns into a two-part series uh, that, that came as a bit of a surprise at the end because there's just a lot of content to cover, but I think you're going to enjoy this. And In the meantime, while you're listening and considering some of these topics, uh, we really invite you to reach out and give us some feedback at info at nogginnotes.com or info at zephyrwellness.org. That's how we get a lot of ideas for these podcasts is people just text me or shoot me an email and say, hey, what about you know this and such, and you know this would be a good podcast topic. Would you cover it? So. This, uh, this popped up during the course of a meeting that we had and I said, you know what, I need to get you on to noggin notes because I think people need to hear this kind of messaging. So without further delay, here is Katie Damon from Community Health Alliance uh, talking to me about eating intuitively and listening to, to, to your own body and also helping to guide your family through good nutritional decision making. Enjoy. So today on Naga Notes, we have a nice treat. We have Katie Damon from Community Health Alliance. Uh, she's going to talk about dietitian stuff because that's what she is as a profession, uh, as a professional, I should say. Uh, you are a dietitian. Hello, Katie. Hi. Uh, thanks for coming on and carving out time. I know that we're all uh, super busy, and it's taken us several weeks to just schedule this on the calendar. So I really, really do honor your uh, contributions, and I know that our our audience certainly does too. So. Um, introduce yourself. Tell us what you do at uh, Community Health Alliance. We've had a couple of your folks on in the past.
1: Yeah. Um, So I'm a dietitian, registered dietitian at Community Health Alliance um, and um, utilize uh, nutrition with our Healthy Living Program, which is a pediatric uh, behavioral change program. Um, And then also within our WIC program and nutrition education information for our patients there.
0: We try to clear up lingo as much as possible. So what are some of those acronyms, the the, the WIC, and then um, explain healthy living, um, and then uh, childhood behavioral uh, yeah. tr- training, education. I forget what it was you said there.
1: <laughs> behavioral change. Behavioral change. Yeah. So um, healthy living program is um, a program that we have with Community Health Alliance. And so it's for families where they're trying to make healthy behaviors um but have you know not been successful. Maybe the weight of the child is a little high. They've got some lab indicators, uh, maybe some elevated lipids, liver enzymes. And so the doctors then will refer that patient and family into the program. Um, and they get seen by um, one of our pediatricians, Dr. Shane, uh, myself as a dietitian and as well as behavioral health. And so we really try to provide wraparound services for the family. And help them give them tools to help them be successful in behavioral change. We stress those changes as five two and zero oh, five standing for five fruits and vegetables a day, two for limiting screen time to no more than two hours, one is for an hour of physical activity, and zero for zero sugary beverages.
0: Talk to me a little bit about um, the, the the link between behavioral change and eating, um, because I. You know, I mean, people tune into this because it's a it's a mental health program, right. and um, most I think most people are comfortable with the idea of mental health as a concept, and then uh, some other people use the term behavioral health, and what we're really talking about is. They're, they're almost synonymous in, in many respects. One deals obviously with the mind and how we think. The other deals with uh, outcomes in terms of behaviors, like what we can see and observe and measure. So if a person is engaging in a pattern of behaviors, chances are pretty good it's linked to how they think about things. Um, so if we're talking about behavioral change and how it relates to dietary, um, explain a little bit more of that, that linking.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, if we look at how we eat, how we eat is usually based on habits, which is a type of behavior. And we're just trying to help shift families in their habits. The majority of us really know what's healthy. Um, the hard part is actually doing it, um, and switching, changing mentality. Maybe, um, you know, there's perceived barriers on how they can, have healthier lifestyle or healthier habits. Um, and so we're, when we talk about behavioral change, we're helping them kind of shift and change those habits that they're having that stem around, um, not just eating, but other lifestyle behaviors like activity, um, sedentary, um, life, um, making sure they're being active.
0: That's a cool program. Um, and I'm I'm a little bit familiar with it because uh, we've had ongoing conversations with uh, between Zephyr Wellness and and your folks to to try to maybe integrate that in the coming months and years. Um, what what I'd like though is uh, if you could take us through a, a for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. So give give an example of client A who is uh, you know I don't know little jo- he's always little Johnny for some reason <laughs> um, little Johnny and little Susie. Um, maybe he's uh, 10 years old and comes in for uh, a primary care checkup and and pre- presuming we get some I guess, I think I heard you say lab results or blood work that mm-hmm. reveal you know lipid function or whatever take us through what a what a typical case might look like and I know they're all individualized but okay. help help the audience understand um this this process by which these uh interventions occur because uh, what I'm trying to do is build in people's um, heads the idea that they can take this information and try to replicate it, maybe in their own communities, or just start looking at their own lifestyles or their children's lifestyles with their parents having happening to listen to this, and then apply some of these concepts.
1: So um, we have different age groups. And so one of the things that we help parents see is maybe parents are feeling really frustrated. They've tried to um change some habits in their home whether that be around beverages or snacks um and so they become really frustrated one of the things that we have a conversation about is What is everybody's role when it comes to, let's just talk about eating. So as a parent, what's your role as a parent? Um, Division of responsibility is a topic that we talk about.
0: So you're talking about like like preparing the food versus buying the food, that kind of thing?
1: Correct. Uh, Versus, you know, quantities. You know, so if we're talking about division of responsibility for, say, a Mm -hmm. two-year-old, a parent has more say in what's... What's on the child's plate, the child is still going to be in control of how much they're going to eat, when they want to eat. But a parent very much has the control of what's on the plate, um, what's in the household, um, versus if we have maybe a Mm 14-year-old, division of responsibility changes a little bit. And so walking families through, okay, so you're trying to make changes here. You can get frustrated that, you know child's bringing stuff from um, a store or something. So let's really just talk about as a parent what your role is. So you can role model. That's mm-hmm. obviously your your role as a parent. Um, you still have control of what's in the house, but as kids become more independent, right, they have more control of their choices of food. So we might not have control of them going to the store but we do have control of what they're doing at home.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Um, so, and then as far as other things, you know, a common um, situation that comes up is uh, snack times or breakfast, everything is kind of rushed and busy. And so helping families um, think about the barriers that are preventing them from being successful. So let's take breakfast, for instance, time, maybe be one of those things. And so walking through with the families and saying, okay, so is there grab-and-go things that uh, might be beneficial so that kids aren't skipping breakfast, so parents aren't skipping breakfast? Um, Could we do some meal prep on Sunday so that there are those grab-and-go things so that there's not um, extra time being spent in the morning? Because the reality of it is when it comes to morning, everyone's trying to get the most sleep possible.
0: And, and smart grab-and-go things, too, right. like, you know, apples and protein bars, not uh, bags of chips. Uh, Correct. Kind of Correct. I want to go back to the, the two-year-old having control because I think that's a concept that I've encountered multiple times in the past, certainly in my own work, but also through the, the work of my students and my interns and, and so forth where parents will actually say, um, it's so hard to get him to eat. Or, uh, when my kid throws a fit, I, I just, you know, I just give in or, or, or the worst one that this is judgmental of me that I, that I hear is, um, he'll only eat fill in the blank. Uh, you know, he'll only eat grapes or he'll only eat chicken nuggets or whatever. And, um, and I, I have a, two years almost two and I have an almost four-year-old um free and free quarters if you ask him <laughs> but uh, the, they have they have great appetites and I have to believe that it's because when mealtime rolled around they ate what we gave them or they didn't eat and it mm-hmm. sounds very cruel um but and part of that has to do with the stress tolerance and being able to watch kids you know throw their fit and then still do what you ask them to do mm-hmm. um and that and there's a that's a whole different topic of you know helping people to parent through their distress tolerance. But um, the idea that that the parents are in charge of the meals, I think, could be somewhat foreign and or uh, shocking to to parents who fall into some of the camps that I mentioned earlier, where they they don't know how to hold that line and say, no, this is what we're eating in our home, versus perhaps uh, what you may encounter some some in your line of work where. Uh, parents are giving the wrong foods, perhaps. So, are you? I guess my question is, as I'm rambling here, um, it makes for good radio when Jake just listens to his own voice. But <laughs> um, if if you could give me some some insight as to maybe some parental pushback that you receive, or or maybe maybe you're not encountering that. Maybe parents are going, "Oh, wow, we had never considered that we we're in charge of the meals with the younger kids." And older kids, we just uh, try to educate them so that they make good choices when they're out of our uh, scope uh, with their allowances or whatever. Mm
1: -hmm. So certainly um, that's a common concern or question that comes up if... uh, getting a toddler or younger child to eat something and it hasn't been su- successful. Um, it's a common topic that comes up. Parents are frustrated. Um, and sometimes you do run into whoever's preparing the food ends up making like three different meals, mm, one mm-hmm. meal for, you know, if there's grandparents living in the house, one meal for grandparents, one, one meal for, you know, a specific child, another meal for the rest of the family. Um, and that's a, a lot of work. And, yes. um, And so we we do kind of talk through with them of, okay, so first off, let's say this is a a lot of work, what you're currently doing. Um, And any type of change is going to be hard. And so we do kind of stress, like, as a parent, your role is to say kind of exactly what you said. This is what what is on the table. Um, So you can eat that. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have to be um, made to order chefs in the kitchen. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but then again, as your as a parent, you know, if there are things that you know are your child doesn't like to eat, we'll give tools. Say, okay, if you're introducing a new food, probably don't want to introduce that new food with a whole bunch of other new foods. Hmm. Um introduce that new food and then also combine that with some other foods that are very familiar to the child and you know will have easy acceptance. Um, a child's more likely to accept a newer food if they know that there's some options for them existing on on the plate. Yeah. Um, and also letting them know that if you've tried something and they didn't like it, there are multiple different ways of trying something, different flavors, cutting it in different shapes. Um, that would be more appealing and that it does take multiple attempts uh, of trying a certain food before you get to an, an acceptance. And taste
0: change too.
1: And taste change, which is all normal. Um, at, at a toddler age specifically, your young child, your food preferences are really developing. Um, and so exposing them to different flavors. I think also it's important um, we want to let parents know is when we talk about how in tune Um, we are with our bodies is children are much more in tune with their bodies and signals of fullness and hunger versus adults and that's important to recognize
0: where does that originate
1: um well the as far as originating it's just biology i
0: mean i guess the chain where where do we get off path
1: well that it can start as early as infancy um if Sometimes, you know, a lot of us have grown up with maybe a clean your plate mentality. Mm -hmm. Um, And that even stems with um, infant feeding. In if you have like a jar of baby food, sometimes as adults, we have that mentality of clean your plate. So it's kind of clean the jar or, you know, clear the whole bottle kind of thing. And they end
0: up barfing in the middle of the night because you've. (laughs) forced to <laughs> right their throats
1: right so it can start um as soon as as infancy hmm. but it has more to do with kind of adults intervening and essentially uh forcing adult view and opinions on a child which doesn't fit
0: You're touching on something that uh, Carl Jung referred to as introjected beliefs, which is uh, unquestioned beliefs or assumptions that are just handed down from our voices of authority, be they parents or neighbors or educators or clergy or TV or anything. Um, We're just presented certain things that are accepted as uh, truths, and then they never deviate in our minds. And so uh, that clean your plate mentality, I think, is a really significant one being that I could unconsciously be teaching my child that by, like, I didn't even consider it until you said it right now in this moment, of emptying the baby food jar. Because how else am I supposed to know that my infant is full unless he starts spitting out his food? Right. And and for the listeners, I keep saying he because I have two boys, but, you know, please don't (laughs) believe that I'm somehow sexist.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's really amazing if we think about um, children, infants, toddlers specifically, they are so in tune with their body's signals for hunger and fullness. um, And we need to respect that and and probably take a lesson as an adult. No kidding. No kidding. Um, As I'm
0: pinching more than an inch around my own belly right now.
1: (laughs) So, um, But that's when we kind of start talking about intuitive eating Mm -hmm. um, and that concept. And so when we think about adults and maybe viewpoints that we've um, grown up with or have kind of implanted into our train of thought – um, we're very misguided by our own um, cues of hunger or maybe not really being able to identify what hunger is. Um, and that can lead us down overeating or eating for different reasons. Um, and so when we talk about the concept of intuitive eating, there's some main principles to that. And um, the first mental, um, principle is to kind of reject the whole concept for adults of diet mentality
0: right right yeah I was, I was actually picking up on that earlier when you were talking about um lifestyle change right mm-hmm. we're talking about behavioral change in the children it's not a diet right. um, diets uh historically i think have been taught to us not as diet meaning what it is that you consume but diet meaning to starve oneself for a short period of time on an artificial budget of food mm-hmm. to achieve some weight goal right and right. so we're not we're not dieting we're, we're changing lifestyle we're changing mentality and um and we're leaning toward this intuitive eating and i want to give credit to the author. i just was let's i wasn't ignoring you i was looking on my phone to see where the authors were because i couldn't remember them but elise resh is mm-hmm. that right um so if you want to look up intuitive eating um, you would, uh, it's, it's at least Russian. I just lost it here. Sorry. And who's the other author? Um, and
1: they have a website, intuitive eating, um, research. I think it's intuitive intuitiveeating.org um, .org intuitive yeah. is the web, their main website. They have a couple different books. So if listeners want to kind of delve more into that, those are resources available to there them. There you go. Yeah. So,
0: so tell, tell us about intuitive eating because you're trained in this.
1: Yeah. So, um, and and again, these are principles that we try to um, teach families because we're not looking at just changing behavior of an individual. We're looking at changing behaviors of a whole family unit.
0: And as a marriage and family therapist who thinks systemically, I appreciate that yeah. specifically. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so the first concept, again, is that rejecting the whole diet mentality. Um, again, diet mentality typically is restrictive mm-hmm. um, and rejects restrictive diets or ways of eating don't work. Um, It sets you up oftentimes for failure and then not feeling really great about yourself either. Totally,
0: totally. We don't want to trigger more guilt and shame in the person who's already not feeling that great.
1: Right. Um, And then uh, some of the other main concepts, again, is listening to your body's cues for hunger and for fullness, which, as we mentioned before, many adults uh, don't really know what that is. So, if, we, if our bodies are giving us signals of hunger, which, you know, that might be we feel a little grumbling in our stomach, um, we should respond to that. We shouldn't ignore it. We should respond to that. And then when we eat, we eat to a point of just being comfortable, not overeating and then being uncomfortable because then that's starting to ignore your body's signals of, hey, I'm getting full.
0: Is there any truth to what I've heard over the years that – your body or your stomach, quote-unquote, takes 20 minutes to realize that it's full?
1: It does It does take time. Um, there are receptors in your stomach to cue to the brain. So when we actually talk about appetite. We'll kind of break that down. When we just talk about appetite, um, appetite is kind of controlled by three main things. So the first is low blood sugar. It's controlled by blood sugar. So as your blood sugar starts going down, then your body will usually give you signs that are often uncomfortable, right? Makes you uncomfortable and you want to eat something. That
0: would be uh, to make this concrete for people, that'd be like lightheadedness and um, maybe fatigue. Um. That kind of thing.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, or even, like I said, you might feel something in your stomach, or mm-hmm. you might feeling, you know, more lethargic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, as it starts getting lower, you start maybe getting into feeling lightheaded or nauseous,
0: grouchy and irritable. Right. Okay.
1: So um, these are all unpleasant sensations, and as soon as we start eating, or actually even then, become in the presence or have access to food, those cues start diminishing. Um, Now we start approaching more of a pleasant state.
0: That's true. I I do approach a pleasant state when I start eating. Right, right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And most of us do. Um, And then once we're eating, right, then we have these stretch receptors in our stomach. So as our stomach is stretching, those receptors pick back, feed back to um, the brain. You start getting more unpleasant feelings, right? Like when, your
0: stomach is literally stretching?
1: Little, Yeah, stretching, oh, sure. right? It's getting bigger.
0: The audience can't see me, but I'm furrowing my brow because this is all news to me.
1: <laughs> so um, your stomach's starting to get fuller. That's signaling um, at, back to your brain like, hey, I'm getting full. Um, if you've ever, I mean, I think we can all think of a big meal, specifically Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. Most people overeat. Uh, we probably ignore some of those fullness cues. And then the what we're left with is not a feeling of comfort. Right. It's usually a feeling of discomfort.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, and so these two kind of go together, right? You get feelings of unpleasant sensations when you start to get hungry. We eat to a point of feeling good. And then as we start approaching more and more f- over fullness, we are then given unpleasant sensations again as like a, this is a stopping point you need to stop here
0: the psychology nerd in me wants to know why we ignore the signals uh, outside of just plain introject that says clear your plate which thanksgiving dinner is not one of those times because food is ever present usually if you're, if you're in a you know middle class home uh there's a big spread you graze for two to four hours <laughs> while right. football's on tv and so it's not a, that's that's not where the clean your plate mentality would kick in. So what is it that makes us override those those responses?
1: Well, so there's a number of different factors, but that's where the third factor comes in is we also eat for pleasure.
0: Oh yeah, it tastes good. Yeah. yeah Salts, yeah. fats, yeah, yeah. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's kind of that third factor of we our senses pick up on how food looks, how um it might smell, and then as we eat it tastes good. Um, we get, you know, lots of feel good feelings when we're eating things that taste good or it's comforting to us. Um, and again, these are all good sensations. So it, why in, do we want to moderation. stop a good thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Sure. <laughs> um, and so that's where you can start getting into reasons of why people are overeating is it's more on the, the pleasure side and not necessarily just Compulsion.
0: biology yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, how much of that overeating is driven by, say, the chemical nature of a food? Say you got tryptophan in Turkey because I'm thinking about uh, Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, but you, you also have, you know, some caffeine and some other things in chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, is is that a factor? Is that more uh, more of a placebo effect that we just convince ourselves that, you know, I'm tired and I have to take a nap because I ate turkey, when really you just consume 9,000 calories and your body's <laughs> overloaded?
1: Well, I think especially, you know, when we get into food science and food engineering, there is food is designed for us to want to eat more, for pleasure senses to be lit up so that we want to eat more. So... Yes, we do have food that is kind of preying on that side of our uh, biology um, to trigger us to want to eat more, to buy more. Um, And then when we go talk about like biology, we're in an environment, as you said, where food is accessible at any point in any time for the most part.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be sensitive to people who may be listening who are, um, you know, from uh, communities that are impoverished or, or, I mean, we do truly have a global audience and, and I don't want to uh, dance lightly uh, across that as though it, it's not an issue. So, you know, we here in America being fat, dumb, and happy with all our mm-hmm. resources, uh, it can come off as really condescending and arrogant to say, well, you know, there's just food everywhere, and that's not necessarily the case for everybody. So um, if we can segue a little bit into that, like we've got an obesity problem in America and, and I would say Western countries globally. I'm starting to pick up on this a little bit more, articles I've seen out of the UK and stuff. Um, that the obesity pervades even the impoverished communities Mm -hmm. and the, the general consensus is that uh, in impoverished communities, you get what's cheap and easy, not necessarily what's uh, affordable and um, healthy. But um, you mentioned earlier that there are some, some perceived barriers to, to accessing healthy food. Talk a little bit about what, what you've seen at least in your line of work uh, regarding folks who may be struggling economically and are struggling with obesity, which doesn't make any logical sense in the average uh, listener's mind, except if you're feeding yourself with um, noxious, crappy foods from Jack in the Box. No dig on Jack in the Box. I love Jack in the Box. But if that's your only diet, I think uh, Morgan Spurlock proved pretty well that that's not not good for your body if that's your only diet.
1: Um, so one of the perceived barriers, when we, especially when we're talking about um, adding more fruits and vegetables, is there's a perception that by Buying more fruits and vegetables that that's going to be more costly mm-hmm. um, on the budget. So again, that's something that we talk about is doesn't have to be fresh. So and it we don't necessarily have to have a freezer or a refrigerator full of fruits and vegetables. So we right, because about- keeping this
0: stuff on hand is hard too, especially Correct. if you're preparing three meals for fr- three different types of people. You got to keep you know things fresh in the fridge and. That's very tough to, to balance that inventory.
1: Right. So we talk about, you know, what what are ways that we can um, still have nutrient-dense foods without essentially over, you know, having too high of a grocery budget. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, one of the things we talk about is, you know, frozen is easily accessible. And I, I say easily meaning um, it's oftentimes easier to come by than fresh um, be- and also cheaper. Fresh, if you're going to go buy, for instance, I'll just use a watermelon for right now. That's out of season. Right. That's going to be much more costly. Um, And same with, you know, if you want berries in June or not June, January. Yeah. um, That's going to be much more expensive. Um, And so we talk about, okay, well, can we do frozen or, you know, we can do canned. Canned is, you can get that at, you know, the 99 cent store. Um, It might not be. Two for a
0: buck, green beans. Yeah.
1: Sure. It might not be like in comparison to fresh, maybe not like the ideal, but that's okay. Yeah. Um. So we really try to meet families where they're at. And again, when we talk about, you know, as I said, like the idea, Well, not we're not trying to get families to an ideal. We're just trying to make steps.
0: So they're not eating funyuns when they walked in because I, I love the Dollar Tree and I yeah. and I shop there regularly and always have. Um, but there's a temptation to go down the candy and cracker aisle instead of the, the canned goods aisle. Mm-hmm. and now they even have freezer sections in the dollar tree. so you can get some reasonably decent frozen stuff. Um, you don't have to have a Costco membership and buy 10 pounds of raspberries for forty dollars or whatever they charge. Um, you can go get you know a dollar size bag and, and still be pretty pretty uh, pretty healthy um but how do you how do you shift the mentality away from the the junk food which is so tantalizing and tempting i mean who doesn't like a good package of takis you know dan- dan- dancing across their tongue
1: sure well that's where we talk about environment right so um if you have those things uh readily available and easily accessible in a household then certainly yeah it's hard to make the choice between Talkies and carrots, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because there aren't any talkies. No, right. <laughs> um, and you know, like I said, one of the reasons for appetite is that pleasure sensor. You know, so it, talkies look good. We know that they taste good, and if I have that option versus carrots, I'm probably going to choose which one I think is going to be more pleasurable. Mm-hmm. So that's when we talk about okay, we have to put some sort of control in the environment. So. If you're having trouble, if, you know, an individual or a child eats, you know, Takis three times a day, then let's not make that easily accessible. Let's make some other healthier options more easily accessible.
0: So that's speaking straight to the parental control over what's available in the cupboards. Correct. And I would imagine that if you're having this conversation with parents who have kids who are over the age of four... um, making that change could incur some some blowback from the children Mm -hmm. so do you or do somebody from the behavioral health counseling department work with the parents on being able to to fortify those those boundaries that they set and being able to again tolerate the kids in their distress and say no, we're we're gonna be like the Berenstain Bears and we're gonna get rid of the junk food <laughs> and how many copies do you give out of that book
1: It's a good book I Isn't remember this? that book yeah. from when I was little um but yes so that's where you know we work together as a as a team and let them know like again change is not easy and so okay so the first time you do this this is probably not just gonna go over smoothly like a piece of cake mm. um, but we also' Not talk- cake
0: Take, cakes not we, healthy
1: like, right. Um, Like a piece
0: of carrot. (laughs) Carrot cake.
1: Carrot cake. Yeah, still not so healthy. But um, um, anyways, but, you know, we might have behavioral health and we talk about like, hey, we talked about this specific issue. Um, We address the family dynamics. So let's say a child is trying to decrease soda um, and then we have an adult that's not on board with that. Right? Yeah. Then we have to have a conversation of okay, let's talk again about role modeling and okay, you as a parent, if you're not ready to give up soda, as an example, then we need to find a workaround here so that your child can be successful in their goal and you can still be supportive with their goal. So, can you leave the soda in your car so it's not in the house? Yeah. Um, so again, giving some, just throwing out ideas for families. And yet then we'll bring behavioral health in to, you know, work through that family dy- dynamic and give parents more tools, maybe help, you know, get them in a more state of readiness for some changes as well.
0: To tie this back to uh, uh, parenting and counseling, the idea of of being consistent is very important. It's one of the four C's of parenting. And, um, consistency breeds credibility so if you don't have consistency your your kids are less likely to listen to you mm-hmm. um, that's why if you can't give up the soda altogether you want to at least make the presentation that you're giving it up if um, I, ideally we'd want consistency and authenticity so you say look kids I'm I'm doing this and so can you there's an old adage uh, about a, a lady who had a son who was a diabetic and um, he wouldn't quit eating sugar and uh, apparently she she you know, knew that he really respected the the Dalai Lama and so she bought a plane ticket, flew him over and uh took him out and said, you know, Mr. Dalai Lama, could you please talk to my my child, uh, you know, tell him to stop eating sugar. It's dangerous for his health. Um and he said, Give me five days and she said, Okay. So five days pass, comes back and squares up and says, Son, quit eating sugar and mom says, well, well, that seemed really easy. What, why did it take five days? And he says, because five days ago, I gave up eating sugar. Mm-hmm. And so the the message there is that in order to tell somebody to do something, you yourself have to be able to to be willing to do it at least and then hopefully walk it out as well. So if you want your kids to follow you, you got to be willing to lead by example. And often it's very challenging, especially when it comes to things like alcohol. I mean, it's no secret that I, I'm a home brewer and I, I make my own beer. And telling my kids that they can't have my beer is very challenging because it's hard to explain to a, an almost four-year-old or a free-and-free-quarters-year-old uh, <laughs> the ways of the law and, right. and you know brain development and so forth. So we just say, it's not good for you. And says, so it's good for adults? And then you go, well. Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> In moderation. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: you keep asking me those questions, and I'm going to have to keep drinking more. Yeah. No, um, but uh, it, it's it speaks to that point that the parents have to be courageous enough to – uh, undergo the change themselves if they want to see the change ripple throughout their families. Mm-hmm. Um, how receptive are people to the the medical knowledge that you know? Maybe they don't they didn't know it before, or maybe they knew it and were ignoring it. Mm-hmm. When you say, uh, "Look, you know, consumption of this type of food, you know, is bad for you," versus consumption of this other type of food is good for you. Talk to me a little bit about that and how you, you just present the the science and the and Dr. Uh, Shane is there and he um, almost said Dr. Steve his first name it's Steve Shane yeah. yeah but Dr. Shane's there and he's like I'm the doctor I have knowledge and um, like do people respond to that or do they need other types of motivation too?
1: Well, I think certainly like with with lab indicators if labs come back and they're elevated um, for parents and, and even for the children when those labs are discussed, sometimes that can be very scary for them. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know, we, we talk through it, um, you know, the reasons why we're making the changes. But we also, when we talk about those labs, we I think fear is never a good way, reason to make changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not to use scare tactics, but to just let them know of, um, you know, these are changes that are going to make improvements inside your body. Um, And also we really stress of you were not necessarily in this program for everyone to lose weight. It's not a weight loss program. This Mm, is a behavioral mm -hmm. change program. And the idea of by making these healthier changes, it's making the insides healthier, I don't necessarily am so concerned about what it's looking like on the outside. On the scale or whatever. Correct. Yeah. I'm more concerned about what these what's going on inside the body. And that's what these changes are, are meant to help improve and to help them have a better quality of life later on.
0: I know you have legitimate credentials as yeah. a as a dietitian and and you're a lactation consultant too, correct? Yes. Um and community health alliance is very legitimate. But what just came out of your mouth can sound like heresy to a lot of people. That uh, that weight doesn't matter. I don't want to. I want to say that loosely. Like, but it's almost like grades in middle school don't really matter. Mm-hmm. Grades in high school matter if you want to go into college, but grades in middle school really don't matter. And that sounds like heresy to a lot of educators. Um, when you say that to people, and you say, "I just want your your insides looking better by our lab results, and I want you feeling better as." You know, described by how you ever the person describes it, that can be a really tough sell for people who are so used to you know in a culture like ours where we're driven by outcomes and evidence and seeing things that we can see and touch and measure and, and feel. Simply watching one's lipid panel improve doesn't feel like a victory. So how do you, how do you how do you sell that? How do you sell the intangible?
1: Right. Um, well, for some patients, it's actually more of a relief. Um, to know that there's not as much stress and pressure around around the weight again Fascinating. Okay. when again when we go kind of talk about rejecting and when it talks about intuitive eating and rejecting the whole diet culture and diet mentality um, there's People sometimes might come into the program and have a preconceived notion of what we're trying to get out of them. Uh huh. So they're
0: a little resistant right from the start.
1: Potentially, right. Mm -hmm. You know, of there's an expectation maybe that I have to fit into a certain ideal or that I have to fit into a, you know, what does healthy look like? And that's a good question to ask, you know. And we oftentimes will ask that question of, you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, I just want to be healthier. Well, what does that look like to you? Mm -hmm. Because for each person, that's different. Um, If they're not sleeping and they're having trouble sleeping, like we're going to address that. That's a health issue. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely.
0: It is. Yeah.
1: Um, And I think it's, we try to then point out some of those changes that maybe they're not. Noticing, for instance, you know, they I've had patients where they're trying to increase their activity, and we have a conversation of it was really hard and challenging, and then the next time they're talking, and I went, Oh, so you're walking, they're walking, you know, maybe an extra half mile, or they're not breathing as heavily as they once were. So, pointing out those changes so that they can actually. It makes it feel more tangible yeah, versus, yeah, yeah. you know, they're maybe not seeing a number on a scale change. Right. But, but
0: historically, they could look back and go, oh, you're right, I did walk four times last week versus right. the zero I was walking a month ago. That's an improvement.
1: Right, correct. Or, you know, I, I don't feel as tired throughout the day as mm-hmm. I used to. So having conversations and trying to point those things out with them, um, and again, reframing the program and letting them know like there's not a specific ideal that we're hoping to shoot everyone towards as far as like what they're supposed to look like right we are really just wanting people to have better quality of life um, for, you know, like I said, we care more about like the insides than necessarily what's happening externally. Um, and you know, for some people there, a lot of times the questions come up, they, they want to know like specific foods, like, do I eat this? Do I not right, right. eat that? Um, and so having conversations of, you know, again, this isn't a restriction, um, diet, uh, and again, that's can be very liberating for, for people, Um, There's not necessarily an ideal way of eating. We're not trying to get everyone to eat exactly the the same way or the same things. Um, And, you know, because we have to take into consideration people's food preferences, their cultural uh, beliefs and cultural lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, We also have to take into consideration um, accessibility to certain foods as well.
0: Is the food pyramid gone
1: it is. It's a plate now,
0: uh, but I mean, it, despite <laughs> regardless of the graphic, yeah. whether it's the square or the pyramid or the or the plate, like is the concept of those portions per um, type of food is is that kind of just done like with? Well, I'm speaking specifically to intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. Do we do away with that, or is it still a good guideline?
1: Um, well, we certainly encourage people to eat more, you know, fruits and vegetables um, when we talk about, like, what do we put on our plate? Um, you know, making sure that the plate is more half of it is fruits and vegetables. Um, but as far as, you know, OK, well, what types of fruits and vegetables, especially with fruits, we get a lot of like is banana OK to eat? Um, yes, banana's fine to, to eat. It's a okay. fruit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we talk more on... Um, not necessarily getting like okay. You've got to get so many in a day. Again, they're setting the goals for themselves. So we have patients that come in that are not eating any fruits and vegetables. Oh so, wow! So you know, can what fruits and vegetables do you like, and can we mm-hmm. encourage you to eat one? You know, right. um, and that's that's success. Like that's making positive change. because um, oftentimes if you have a child that's not eating any fruits and vegetables, it also probably means that there's more people in that family that aren't eating as much either. So if we can get a child to eat one, then that also probably means that other people in the family are eating more fruits and vegetables as well too. Do
0: people come through with things like scurvy?
1: Uh, I have not seen that okay. in, no. <laughs> I'm thinking
0: like, you know, like if you're not eating fruits and vegetables, you hear t- tales about, you know, college kids who only eat Top Ramen and they yeah. check in with scurvy. And they might like, have some constipation. A, but... a pirate? Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to, I want to take a break, um, because I think this is a two-parter. I want to come back with some more stuff and I see you looking at your notes and I know you've got more written down. Um, we're, I mean, we're. We're on 40 minutes now and that's a that's a good podcast I think as most people uh, would would go by so I'm gonna make this I'm just gonna turn this into part one and then uh, part two will come back and I want to talk about some other things like uh, the the fad diets and I don't know if you want to call them diets but they're maybe their lifestyle choices uh everything from vegan to atkins to paleo and all that stuff and also eating disorders i want to touch on that but that's i think that's we're gonna oh, leave yeah, that for next week
1: it's a lot of topics yeah it is,
0: well it is we could probably talk the rest of the afternoon yeah. but um thanks for the listening to the listening audience for listening uh we're gonna bring you part two as i'm just shifting on the fly here because there's so much content and i don't want to just load it up uh in one uh, session so we'll come back with part two next week. In the meantime, if you want to reach out to us, uh, info at naga info at Zephyr wellness.org is how you can do that. Float us, uh, new ideas, uh, questions you may have rolling around in your head and we can try to answer them the best we can in a future episode. Um, thanks to Katie Damon. And, uh, if you never tune back in community health Alliance is uh, who sent her over here. But if you do tune back in, you'll hear her on the next episode of part two of our, uh, intuitive eating and diet uh, i don't know what we're going to call this thing the diet diet uh, dietitianing so. <laughs> thanks everybody and on behalf of the noggin notes team and the zephyr wellness crew we wish you all great mental wellness see you in part 2